Our text for this Lord's Day comes from the prophet Haggai, chapter 1. Hear now God's holy word. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks Yahweh of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that Yahweh's house should be built. And the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, as we encounter your word today, we ask your Holy Spirit to minister to us. Use me as a capable messenger of your word. Help me to recall the things that uh, are helpful. Help us to forget everything that is not helpful. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And may we all receive your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Matthew said just a little while ago, happy seventh day of Christmas, Merry Christmas. And I know that still sounds odd to uh, some of you, and uh, you'll, get, you'll get used to it. Um, we are still singing Christmas songs, even though the stores, uh, like Walmart, they've already got their 4th of July stuff out, right? I mean, they pushed all the Christmas stuff out, and now it's, now it's on to other things. But you know that Christmas is not one day, but 12. And the eighth day of Christmas always... It always works out this way. The eighth day of Christmas is always New Year's Day, which makes the seventh day of Christmas New Year's Eve, and that's the day that we're on today. So even in the midst of rejoicing in Jesus, our Savior, and in His incarnation, and in His nativity, in the midst of that, we turn a corner, and we, we close a chapter on 2017, and we open a new page of our calendar on 2018. We all head into a new year together. Nobody can stop it. There's no, you can't dig in your heels and say, I wish it were 2017, just a little bit longer. Uh, that's not going to happen. So on this last day of the old year, even as we rejoice and even as we celebrate, and I want you to continue celebrating the Lord Jesus and his nativity. I also want us to be looking forward to the coming year as a congregation. I want to encourage you in faithfulness in the coming year and to start thinking about what that looks like for us. What does is, what is 2018 hold for our congregation, for our families, for us as a church? So, so even as we rejoice, don't stop rejoicing, yet we're, we're, we are coming across a benchmark and we're crossing a threshold. So, so what does this look like? And I want to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about faithfulness in 2018 as it pertains to our church. What kind of discipline is required of us to get where we want to be this time next year? Have you ever heard or read the acronym NEET, N-E-E-T? It comes up in a lot of demographic and sociological literature more and more recently, and I probably read way too much of that stuff, so it kind of skews my thinking in a certain direction, but the, the acronym NEET, N-E-E-T, it stands for Not in Education, Employment, or Training. And it's a statistical category for people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are neither working nor in any kind of vocational training nor in school. 
Another phrase you might find that describes the very same group is disconnected youth. And these numbers are studied and reflected on as an indicator of how well young people in our society are faring in the transition from childhood to adulthood. Are they thriving or are they failing to thrive? And on this measure, in the United States, it's believed that almost 5 million people fit this description. They are NEETs, N-E-E-T, not in education, employment, or training. They are disconnected youth. They are nowhere and they're going nowhere. That means about one in eight young people between the ages of 16 and 24 are neither working nor are they in school. That's about 12.3% of people in that generation who are right in that sweet spot of opportunity with the time and the energy to be as productive as they will ever be in their lives and they're not investing themselves in anything. You, you know, as a, we, we all know, and we think back to those years between you know, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22, you never have more energy, you never have more health, you never have more time than you do in that, in that period of life and yet uh, these folks, these kids, these young people are not investing themselves at all. They're not developing the knowledge, the skills, the maturity, the sense of purpose required to live rewarding lives as adults. And so this has ripple effects all across our country and all across our society. The negative effects of youth disconnection ricochet across the economy, across the social sector, across the criminal justice system, across the political landscape. These people don't have jobs and they don't go to school, but they do vote. They, they can still do that. And, and it affects and impacts all of us everywhere. This post-adolescent failure to thrive represents a significant loss of economic opportunity for the nation because they're still eating, right? I mean, they're, they're, if they're alive, they're eating, they're still consuming, and yet they're not producing. And so they, they are a considerable drag on the productivity and the economy of the nation. And, and it's so mind-boggling. Is it really possible, you think, is it really possible that one in eight young people are going nowhere? They're not in school, they're not in any kind of training, and they're not working. Is that possible? Well, it, it's so easy from a position of many of us, and I know you young people, you think, oh, I've heard this all before. I'm so sick of everybody just piling up on our generation, and everybody thinks we're, you know, lazy and worthless and thick-headed and, and all that. Well, I want to let you off the hook because we're not, we're not the, first of all, we're not the first generation to say that the next generation is going to be the death of our civilization. Uh, we may be the first generation who's right about that. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but we're not, we're not the first generation to say the next generation will be the death of our civilization. It's very easy to forget that not all young men and women uh, are directionless. We have in our families and we have among our children some exceptionally bright, motivated, hard-working uh, hard young people who are cutting against the grain of their peers and doing some really, really good work. It's also easy to forget that generations, younger generations, don't just appear out of a, a, a vacuum. They're, they're not just, oh, wow, look at all these problems that they have. Where did that come from? The next generation is walking down a path that we've put them on. They're, they're walking further down a road that we have set their feet on. And so whatever we see in them is but a reflection of our own failures and shortcomings and wickedness is. So when we look at the next generation, we have to own 
that. We have to say, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good reflection of where we put them. This is what we got them started on. Because we, as a society, are awash in passivity ourselves. How can we say, oh, you look, you're, you're lazy and you're worthless, when, when we waste so much time and energy and potential. We are identified as consumers rather than producers for the most part. We desire entertainment more than we do work. This passivity is why advertising works. Why do you get junk mail in your, in your mailbox every single day? Because it works on somebody. There is somebody who's just waiting around to be told what to do, who to vote for, uh, what to wear, how to look, what to think. This, this one, one quote I read said, some of the smartest people in the world are working hard to come up with new ways to get you to click on ads. Let me repeat that. Some of the most brilliant people in the world are working right now, working on new ways to get you to click on ads. That, that's, where our, that's where our brain trust is. And, and that's where we are focused as a people. And it's no surprise when we see this reflected and magnified in the next generation. Well, as any good reader of the Bible knows, and any good student of the Bible knows, there's nothing new under the sun. We can always point to patterns in the biblical narrative, and we can say, well, we've seen something like this before. God is orchestrating history. God is writing a story. And when he repeats himself, we can say, well, that, that's happened before. How is our situation similar or different from that situation? What can we learn from them? And, and what is the way out? So what era of biblical history is most like the day that we're living in today? Now, we could debate about that, and we could have a great conversation about that, and there may be several eras that inform our present day. I've always been drawn to think about the days after the Babylonian captivity, before the construction of the city of Jerusalem and, and the reconstruction of the temple. It, it seems like we're living in this kind of in-between time as they were in that, in that period. And I'll, I'll catch you up on some of that history. But, but for me, it feels like very much in, in, in the church in this age of history, we're, we're living in a, in a kind of uh, 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 an in-between, between something big and something else big, and we're here right in the middle. It's been 500 years since the Reformation, and it seems as if all the water has run out of that bathtub, all the equity in the, in the, in the culture and all of the, uh, the strength of, of the Reformation in the church to, to motivate and propel the church. It seems like we've spent all of that capital, and now the Holy Spirit must do something new to revive us uh, otherwise, we're going to keep coasting and just, just making do. And so this was the kind of thing that was going on uh, in the period that the prophet Haggai was, was living in. It was after the 70-year Babylonian captivity, after the decree from Cyrus, where he said, the Jews, you can all return home. You can, you can go back. It's after that but it's before the, the temple is reconstructed. It's before the city of Jerusalem is put back together. And uh, it's way before the coming of Jesus. So in every sense, it's, it's just in between. It's in between time. It's after this big thing, but before this next big thing. When Cyrus, the emperor of the world, issued his decree for uh, everyone to go back home, everyone can go back, return to their own country, it's important to note that not everybody packed up their bags and left uh, Babylon. They, uh, and what was at that time Persia, uh, because Persia had conquered Babylon. 
Not everybody, not everybody packed their bags and went. There were three major waves of immigration out of, out of Persia into, into Jerusalem. And that still didn't, didn't account for everyone. After three waves of immigration, uh, not everybody had gone back. The people who joined the first wave had to have been trailblazers and groundbreakers. They had to leave their homes and neighbors and routines and jobs and schools. If you live somebody somewhere as a family for 70 years, which is almost unheard of in our, in our culture today, when you live somewhere in one place for 70 years, you kind of put down roots. And now the emperor says, you can go back home. Well, let's go back home. But we're leaving all of this. And what are we going to? Well, we're going back to a city that's laid barren for 70 years. Uh, there are no schools. There's no infrastructure. If we're going to live somewhere, we're going to have to build a house. There's no house of God. There's no, uh, there's no wall to the city. There's no protection. The city's been burned. The temple's been burned. Foreigners are squatting on our family's land. Wild animals are running loose. So there's no schools, no jobs, no places to set up, no stores, nothing to sell or buy or trade. Everything is going to have to be rebuilt. Peace and order and safety would have to be established by those who are moving there. So, so who's going to do all this? In a city without walls, in the ancient world, who's going to do all this? Well, there's a wave of people who say, yeah, sign me up. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's, let's go do this. And so when they get back to Jerusalem, they get to work. They start laying the foundation of a new temple. There's a lot of momentum as uh, a, a lot of joy as they, as they leave Persia and they go back to, uh, they go back to the city. There's, uh, there's a great deal of excitement. And as they lay the foundations of the new temple, it starts to look r rather clear that, that this is not going to look like the old temple. It's not going to look like the previous temple. We don't have the craftsmen. We don't have the materials. We don't have the human resources to do what Solomon did. And what Solomon did was, was build this wonder of the ancient world. And now we're just some, some guys who've been released from captivity. And now we're going to come back and we're going to do something here. But we're going to have a temple and it's going to be a blessing. We're going to be happy to have it. And we're going to rejoice in it. And when they laid the foundation, the priests blew the trumpets, the Levites and the musicians played the cymbals and they sang psalms. And all this is back in the, in the book of Ezra. The whole history here uh, of, of this is in he Ezra. And the people shouted with a great shout because they're building a temple and it's so exciting and it's so thrilling and it's so encouraging to get this work underway. But as the young men shouted and rejoiced, there were a handful of older priests and older men who remembered the old temple, who started to weep. And they started crying out with a loud voice, so much that you couldn't tell who was rejoicing and who was crying. There was this wailing and rejoicing and shouting all going on at the same time. Men singing psalms and others wiping tears. That was discouraging for the, for the men who had laid the foundation of the new temple. That, that kind of gutted them. It's like, well, no, it's not going to be Solomon's temple, but we didn't even say it's going to be Solomon's temple. This is not what we're aiming for. We just want to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the discouragement of the old men were, were coupled with something else. There were, there were foreigners living uh, in the surrounding territories. They stirred up trouble and they stirred up opposition. Again, this is all in Ezra. If you want to you catch up on all this history, they, they stirred up opposition. They wrote letters to the king and said, what are you doing? These, these people are troublemakers. You don't want these people rebuilding their city. 
Why are you letting them do this? And the, the outside opponents did everything they could to prevent the work on the temple and the work on the city. And so with internal uh, discouragement and external opposition, work on the temple completely stopped. They, they laid the foundation, they had a party and rejoiced. They noticed that these men over here are weeping. These guys over here in the countryside are writing letters to the king and they are just gutted. They lose hope. They lose any sense of encouragement. And for 16 years, not one finger is lifted to do anything to work on the temple. 16 years goes by and no one does a thing. Do you know how depressing and discouraging that must have been to walk? The, the, the temple's in the middle of the city and you're trying to rebuild the city and the temple there is in the middle of the city and you just, you walk by it every day. The foundation is just laying there untouched. Grass and weeds start to grow through the cracks. Garbage and, and building materials lay around scattered. Every day people are passing by this embarrassment and they have to justify to themselves why they aren't doing anything with it. And you can put yourself in their spot, right? You tell yourself, well, I guess it just isn't time yet to do anything. Or, well, you know, I'd be happy to work on it. If somebody just call me and let me know, we'll show up, we'll have a work day. We'll come out here, at least clean up this mess and, and do something. Uh, but, but I can't find anybody to help me. Every time I ask somebody, everybody's always busy. So, so, so what am I supposed to do with it? Or there was these other guys that said they'd be starting up something soon. I haven't talked to them in a while, and, but they haven't done anything. I kind of thought it was their responsibility to do something, and they haven't, they haven't done it. Or, you know what? I'd love to see it built, but, but maybe it's not my job in, in my generation. Maybe the next generation will have to come along and do it because I don't want to deal with the opposition. I want to deal with the frustration, and I don't want to deal with all that discouragement again. I don't want to deal with the complaints of the old guys who are saying this doesn't look like Solomon's temple. Shut up. I know it doesn't look like Solomon's temple, but I, I'm tired of hearing about it. So you've got to keep the steady supply of excuses going to deal with this large, looming, embarrassing problem right in the middle of the city. And this is the scene that the prophet is called into that we just read uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, Haggai steps into this, this time of malaise and frustration and disappointment and discouragement and depression. How depressing is it to know that there is something you have to get done and, and you just keep turning away from it and you turn away from it? That, it will drive you absolutely mad. Well, the prophet comes in, this, this lack of faithful activity on the part of the people has directly resulted in their lack of blessing, he says. He's, you've planted seeds, but you reap small harvests. You're always hungry and thirsty. You make clothes, but no one's warm. You have a little bit of money, but when you put it away, it's like your purses have holes in them. It just falls right out the bottom. You ever feel like that, uh, trying to manage a household finance? Uh, to, to, you feel like, oh, tr tr keep putting the money away, but it just falls out the bottom. Where, where's it all going? How's it, how's, it, uh, how's it not stacking up? Well, this is what's happening to them. The Holy Spirit then stirs up Haggai, and he gives him this message. It is time now for you to get back to work. And we could sum up the entire book of, of Haggai with that phrase. It is time for you to go back to work. You have spent time remodeling and rebuilding your own houses while the house of Yahweh lies in ruins. And so let's pick up where we left off at verse 7. He says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says Yahweh. 
You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, this is the governor and the high priest, a high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of Yahweh. Then Haggai, Yahweh's messenger, spoke Yahweh's message to the people saying, I am with you, says Yahweh. So Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God. He says, you know why you haven't been successful. You know why everything you've done has just kind of dribbled and nothing's come to fruition and nothing's worked out. It's because of my house. You've, you've ignored it. And so the Holy Spirit stirs up the leaders and the people and they get back to work and they finish the temple and it only takes them four years to finish it. They haven't done any work for 16 years. They could have built, a temp they could have built four temples in that time that they did nothing. But it took the Holy Spirit coming and shaking things up and filling men with a sense of resolve and purpose to, to get the work done, to start where they were right then, not to wallow in grief over all the lost years, but to begin right away with the discipline to get things done. This same discipline, people of God, is precisely what we need if you and I are going to build something in our day, in our generation, something that's going to last and be a blessing for generations to come. This same discipline, this determination to be disciplined is necessary to break up any stagnancy, any complacency, this steady downward lowering of standards that's present everywhere in our society. It characterizes our day and it drags us down with it. Uh, the, sort of, the sort of discipline I want to talk about is not this graceless, merciless legalism. I'm not talking about conformity to some human expectation, but the discipline that the people in Haggai's day required to be faithful, this regular, tenacious, dependable obedience to the Lord. God had given them a mission. He cleared the path. He provided the means and they just dropped the project that he had given them to finish when they met some resistance. Well, what they had to learn is that that discipline is doing what's right even when it isn't fun. It's doing what's right even when there is opposition. Discipline is deciding what to do and doing it. That's what's required of us. Well thought out, consistent faithfulness that's able to see clearly the things that are important and the things that are not so essential and get to work on the things that are, are critical. So, so what does this discipline entail? I want to quickly look at this. What, what three things, I'm just going to hit on three little points. Um, what, it, what, it, what has to be in place for us to be the kind of people that get things done the way these people did in this era, in this day? Uh, and, and as we look to the year ahead, what, what might the Lord be calling us to do? The first, the first thing that was required then, and the same thing that's required now, is something that ought to be, uh, ought to be understood by all of us, but, but it needs to be said. The first thing is planning. The disciplined man 
is the man who plans, who sets his mind on doing a thing and then faithfully does it. The, the ability to kind of see into the future a little bit, to, to think about tomorrow and plan for something is a Christian attribute. As we talked all the way throughout Advent, uh, pagan cultures have no strong concept of tomorrow. They're not, they're not looking ahead. They don't, have a, they don't have a sense of time. Time is cyclical. It gets hot, then it gets cold. Then it gets hot, and then it gets cold. Things turn green outside, and then they turn brown. Green and brown. We just exist. But this is not the way the Christian lives. We have glimpses of the future in the scriptures, and, and with that, we're given an end to work toward. We worship a God who foreordains things. He plans things, and then they happen. We are made in his image, and so as his image bearers, we make plans too. Jesus asked his disciples to consider the cost of following him, and Jesus said, which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down and first and, and count the cost, whether you have enough to finish it? He says, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who has 20,000? Jesus says, uh, you sit and you think and you consider the cost and, and, and look forward to the future and see what you've got and see where you want to be. You and I, as creatures made in the image of God, we are blessed with this faculty of looking ahead and making preparation for the future. We're not like animals who just live in basic survival reaction mode, focusing only on the thing that is in front of us, simply responding to stimuli. It, it, it's so easy to fall into this rut. You know it at work. You can spend days and days at work just putting out fires, just answering complaints, just shuffling papers around, being consumed with all kinds of busy work that really don't move you forward and they really don't move the business forward. That's just survival mode. That's, that's what we're called to do. Like a, like a man who builds a tower, like a king who goes to war, you have to take the fires into consideration, but also to step back often and take an inventory of where we are, of what we're doing, and think about the big picture. And so this new year presents us an opportunity to ask the question, what do we want to be doing in five or 10 or 15 years? What, what do we want our families to look like? What kind of children do we want to send out when they turn 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 or 21? Do we want them to be engaged in training and education and employment or not? Where do I want to be in my life, in my career? Where do we want the church to be? What do we want our church to look like in 10, 15, 20 years? You see, if we haven't articulated those things, we haven't thought about it, we haven't thought realistically about how to get to where we want to be, it indicates that we are just living in kind of this pagan animalistic survival mode. We're just putting out fires. And I confess that the temptation is so strong for me and for you, and in church leadership especially, to be kind of a fireman, to, to just kind of uh, just to, just to run from one crisis to the next. And sometimes it feels like that's what God is calling us to do for a season. But then what? Well, you have to get up above it and plan above the crises, above the fires. The important thing for all of us to remember is what these people had to acknowledge then in Haggai's day is that planning starts from where you are, not from where you wish you were. Planning starts with what you have right now, a sober inventory of your gifts, your blessings, your present situation, and then set down in writing, how am I going to take these talents that God has given me and how am I going to leverage them and invest them in the kingdom for the future? What's it going to take to get there? One more note on planning. 
you and I have to make plans with a great measure of flexibility because God changes our plans often and he loves to do this. God loves to change our plans for the better, but he never changes the plans of men with no ambition, with no purpose, with no resolve. If you have no plans to change, God is not going to change your plans. It's, it's also possible, very possible to plan evil. It's possible to have bad plans or to plan apart from wisdom or plan apart from the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, so when we talk about plans, we're not talking about pipe dreams or schemes or scams. The kind of planning I'm referring to is the resolve to do what is right with what God has given you. Resolve to get something done that God has clearly required of us. When the prophet here gets on the scene, the people had no plan. They had no prospects for getting the job done until the Holy Spirit stirred them up and re-inspired them with a vision for the future and then they were able to finish the job. The second demand of discipline, the first is planning, the second is consistency. The disciplined man makes his plan and then he follows it. He shows up every day until the plan is complete, even when he doesn't feel like it, even when it isn't fun, even when there's opposition. The temple project fell apart because the men stopped showing up to work. When, when Haggai encouraged them and the Holy Spirit strengthened them, they worked diligently until it was completed four years later. It didn't take that long to finish because they hit it day. I know most of you have heard this before, but I'm going to keep repeating it and you'll hear it over and over. You know, when I do, when I do premarital counseling, one thing that I always hit with young couples is that you are now in a position to define who you are going to be and what you are going to be as a family. And if you're going to define yourself as a faithful family, you only have to decide one time that you, for example, are going to worship every single Lord's Day. That saves you from having to decide when you wake up on Sunday morning, are we going to worship today? I don't know. How do you feel? Do you feel tired? Do you feel sick? What's up? I don't know. Do you feel like going today? I guess I feel like going today. I don't feel like going today. It's not an every, Lord day, uh, every Lord's Day decision. It's a one-time decision. <clears throat> You already decided, this is who we are. Every Lord's Day we worship. If we're on vacation, it doesn't matter. We already decided a long time ago. Well, one child is sick. Okay, well, I'll stay home. You take the others, but we worship. That's what we do. And that applies across the board. When you're planning on who you want to be in 2018, you have to make the decision one time. You say, I'm a generous person. That's who I want to be because I know that that's what I'm called to be. And there are blessings innumerable for the giver. Make the decision. I give. That's who I am. I don't come before the Lord empty-handed into worship. And when an opportunity comes to cook or, or to contribute to a collection, I do it. That's, that's who I am. I decided I'm a giver. And when the list goes out asking for help, I sign up. Why? Because I've already made the decision. That I don't have to decide if I'm participating. I only have to decide uh, what I'm going to do to help. Am, am I going to take a chicken or a lasagna over to their house? That's, that's the only decision that's left. A call's gone out. Am I going to help in painting or am I going to weed eat? Those are the decisions I have to make now. But the, the decision, am I going to help, that's already been made. You see, you know this. This is one of the toughest things that, that we uh, have to teach our children, but one of the most necessary. 
we have to go through these routines over and over and over. What do you do when you're finished with a plate? What do you do when you sit down at the table? What do you do when it's time to go to bed? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Well, what do we teach them? We teach them routines. This is who you are. Who are you? I'm a person who gets up, I make my bed, I brush my teeth, I get dressed, I comb my hair, I walk, get my bag, I walk. That's who I am. That's the person I am. And, and we, we teach them these routines, but we think that they don't apply to ourselves. We think that, oh, well, I'm, I'm kind of an adult now. I just, I just fly by the seat of my pants. Am I a giver? I don't know. Do I feel like a giver today? Am I a helper? I don't know. Do I feel like a helper today? No, I'm a helper. And if I see something that needs to be done and I have the skills to do it, it's my responsibility. Whose responsibility is that? I don't know. Do you know how to do it? Yeah. Do you have the skills and the energy to do it? Yeah. It's your responsibility. It is your responsibility. We're done. It's done. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to debate about it. It's your responsibility. And of course, I always need to offer a, a qualification. When I talk about consistency, uh, there's a kind of rigid wooden consistency that's flawed and unwise, but goes ahead anyway, blockheadedly, militantly, like, like these zero tolerance policies in public schools. You, you heard about the kid a few years ago who got suspended because he had a Pop-Tart at lunch and he, he bit it into a gun, right? He, he chewed it in, until it shaped like a gun. Well, we can't have guns in school, not even Pop-Tart guns. And uh, so we suspend the kid. Well, did he go pew, pew, pew with it or not? I don't know. Well, it's shaped like a gun, so we gotta, we got to suspend him. That's kind of, kind of block-headed consistency that, that I'm, I'm not talking about. Uh, this, this drudgery of ignorantly carrying out foolish plans in spite of their flaws. We don't want to do that. We want to be consistent the way the Lord is consistent. How is he consistent? The sun comes up. The sun goes down. Winter turns to spring. Spring turns to summer. Summer turns to fall. Chickens give birth to chickens, give birth to chickens, give birth to chickens. He, this is how he works. Not only that, he makes promises and he keeps them. He's incredibly consistent with his promises. God has a 100% promise-keeping record, but sometimes he changes things when it's necessary. One time he made the sun stand in the middle of the sky. One time it rained and it didn't stop raining until the earth was flooded. One time he made water into wine. And lots of times with his promises, he gives us more than he promised. We, we thought we were going to get a king and a deliverer. And what we got was Jesus, so much more. We got Emmanuel. We got God with us, uh, who we rejoice over this Christmas. So you and I, we want to be consistent like that. Not, not blockheads who, who just force things that are foolish, but, but consistently faithful so that when... Things change according to God's plans. When God mixes things up, the change is even better than the plan, not worse than. We, we want to be consistent the way God is consistent. And that's what gets temples built. Thirdly and quickly, very one last thing, discipline requires the right priorities. And this is something that Haggai addresses directly. The people had spent all kinds of time and all kinds of money and energy making their own homes lavish while the Lord's house sat in ruins. Nothing wrong with having a nice place to live so long as it sits on the right list, uh, right rung of priorities. It isn't more important than anything the Lord has told you to do. And these people had all kinds of hopes of blessing and peace and joy of, of what they thought they were going to have. Once they squared their own lives away, they think maybe we'll get to work on what God wants us to do. But all these dreams and hopes were coming up empty. The disciplined man has to make a call on what's most important, what's less important, what's irrelevant altogether. 
the priority for people in this day was to finish the house of the Lord and reconstruct the city. A lower priority was to finish out their man cave in their basement. That was not, that was not their highest priority, but they got these priorities confused and the result was disastrous. Now, these people have to leave their own houses and go work on the Lord's house. Uh, they have to submit to a plan and a, and a cause bigger than their own. They had to work for a greater good than their own. And they know that they have to, as they do this, endure some hardships. Maybe some hardships that people after me are not going to have to deal with. But the good of the community takes priority over my own comforts. And the disciplined man knows how to make these calls, how to apply his efforts and his life to this not that, for this thing, not this other thing, for this high goal, not these lower goals. Life is too short, it's too precious to waste our time on things of no consequence. So, so these are three thoughts, three things that bust up malaise and stagnancy and lack of motivation and depression and despair. We're talking about a discipline that plans, a discipline that is consistently faithful, and a discipline that understands priorities. And you, you know what the reward for this is? The reward for hard work is rest, Sabbath, peace, real rest. Haggai's name, it means festival. When he comes on the scene, who's that guy? What's his name? I think his name is festival. His name is party. Here's old festival telling everyone to get to work. That's his message. Festival, a guy named, a guy named feast day tells everybody to get to work. But before he came, all their work produced nothing. And after Old Festival comes along, he comes and they begin the work again. And he promises later in this book, he says, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree will all yield their fruit. The land will flourish once again and there will be real rest and real enjoyment. Real rest only comes after work. That's the only time real rest comes. The Lord worked on six days of creation and he rested. Laziness, non-productivity, is not rest. It's not rest. It looks like rest, but it's anything but restful. It produces anxiety and depression and guilt. The sluggard flops back and forth on his bed like a door on its hinges in Proverbs. But real rest comes to the faithful man. E Ecclesiastes 5 says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Psalm 127 says, He gives his beloved sleep. So, so the Sabbath, the festival, the feast is the reward for the disciplined man. He enjoys the fruits of his labor. He blesses others. He moves history forward. He builds up the kingdom. And the Lord takes pleasure in the disciplined man's work. So as you and I head, I'm going to wrap this up real quickly. As we head into the new year, as a congregation, can we determine together, and there's more to come and, and more pointed direction and vision casting, but as we do this, can we just determine this, that at the end of 2018, we will be the faithful active people at the end of Haggai's prophecy, not the depressed, discouraged people looking at a, at a, a weedy uh, lot of land at the beginning of, of Haggai's prophecy. Pray for me, pray for your elders, pray for your deacons who will help lead us and get us to that place. Pray that, that you will see how to be faithful in all things and to, to grow this tenacious 
a, a, a commitment toward, toward serving each other so that there's never any hesitation to throw yourself in to whatever is asked and whatever is needed so that we together can establish a physical uh, public center of Sabbath living for our community, which is and continues to be our goal. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us this strength. All of this is just words and noise and bluster and sound without your Holy Spirit. We need your strength to accomplish anything. And we need you to help by taking barriers out of the way, by providing the resources through your people and through the storehouses of wealth that you have at your command. And so, Father, we ask you, as we turn the corner into this new year as a congregation, that you would bless us in all these ways. Strengthen us and, and put our hands to, to, to good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.